Well, I've always wondered if Jesus ever got a spanking. No, we all know that. Well, uh, today, as we get further in the story, it's, it's the perfect day in the story to talk about mothers. Because for so many of us, it's our mothers who are the closest representation of Jesus in our lives. I was thinking about this just the other day, Stephanie. I had a, a big crowd of our family over at our house. And, and you know when you do that, you work all weekend, you get ready, and you clean up all Sunday afternoon. And it was a great time. But I thought back to how many times my mom had did that. She loved to entertain. But I also think how few times I really said thank you. You, you, you just you didn't realize the work that went in it. And for most of us, it's our moms who served us to a degree. Nobody else has served us in our life, and we thank God for that. But I do want to be sensitive today that not for all of us are those kind of memories present. Some of you might actually have some bad memories of your mom or even no memories. Some of you today's a hard day because your mother passed away or you've desired to be a mother and that's not happened in your life. So today for some could be a difficult day. But here's the good news this morning, because we're talking about Jesus. And as E. Stanley Jones said, the famous missionary to India, Jesus is the great equalizer. Whatever is missing in your life, Jesus is able to fulfill that. And so today we get to Philippians chapter 2. And and we're going to look at this text about Jesus. But first, we're going to hear... The Apostle Paul challenging the church at Philippi to treat each other better. They've actually got some folks arguing in the church. And he says, you guys need to cut it out. Listen to what he says. Verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. That's pretty radical. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset of Jesus. Wow, what a challenge. And it's so opposite, guys, of the way we learn to live in this world. Jesus came down the ladder. We're taught that, you know, success is actually going up the ladder. You know, just, just something as small as, you know, as you're, you're younger, you're okay with, you know, Motel 6. And, and then you move up to Best Western. And then maybe you get to Holiday Inn. And you think you've arrived when you get to the Hampton Inn. And very few of us ever get to the Rich Carlton, right? But in every area of life, whether it's hotels or whether it's career or, or, or whether it's just accomplishments, Our world teaches us that real success is climbing the ladder. There's always a ladder to climb. And there is a sense of fulfillment when you get to the top of the ladder. You feel like you've accomplished something. You feel like you've done something. You you feel like there is some um, status involved in that. Because listen to me. The Apostle Paul is wise enough to know even when you get to the top of the ladder in your career or at your hotels or even in your neighborhood and the size of your house, it's not fulfilling in the long run. And it actually leads to a temptation that you actually think you are better than other people. And if you're not careful, you might even become condescending. So that's why Paul talks about this. And Paul says, if we want an example of what it looks like to live a life of humility and service, it's Jesus. 
And, and guess I've been, I've been trying to work on this for, for months. Like, okay, I know this Sunday I'm getting to Jesus. How in the world am I going to preach about Jesus in one message? What text am I going to find that could sum up the life of Jesus? I've been praying about that. I feel like God led me to this text. Because this is, to me, the ultimate text we're about to look at about Jesus in his whole life. William Barclay, the famous commentator, said, this is the greatest and most moving passage Paul ever wrote. And if you read this closely, most scholars believe what I'm about to read to you, it's a hymn about Jesus' role in the story. But if you look at it, there's three stanzas. There's Jesus' pre-earthly days, there's his earthly days, and there's his post-earthly days. So let's read this. Philippians 2, starting in verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset of Christ Jesus. Now listen to the song. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Did you watch Jesus descend the ladder? Stay with me just for a second. Don't get too scared, all right? I've tried this 10 times. I've only fallen once. Okay, <laughs> Jesus starts right here on the top. I'll just put one foot here, okay? He exists. Y'all, okay, just hang in there with me. Listen to the message. He exists in equality with God. John 1 verse 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. But Jesus is willing to descend. He doesn't consider it something to be grasped. That's a great verse there. Some translations say he didn't consider it something to be selfishly, sorry for y'all's position. He didn't consider itself something to be selfishly held on to. Isn't that crazy? He existed as God. I think the NIV said there that he didn't use it for his advantage. Guys, anytime someone's empowered, they're above people, they can take advantage of it. But we're all blown away when someone in power uses their power, not for power, but for service. The greatest example in American history is from President George Washington to the end of his second term. Everybody loved Washington. He could have served as long as he wanted to. In fact, if he had wanted to, many people would have crowned him king. But he says at the end of his term, I'm not going again because that'd be too much power in one man. And I certainly not going to be a king because we've done that before. So he humbled himself, okay? So Jesus exists as equality with God. He didn't consider it something to be grasped, to be selfishly held on to. So he made himself nothing. Now, some translations say there, he emptied himself. 
It's like if you were watching the coronation of Prince Charles last week as King of England. Let's say he's walking out of Westminster Abbey. He's got his robe on. He's got his crown on. He's got his scepter in his hand. He walks out the front steps of the church. He takes the robe off. He throws the scepter in the bushes. He puts the crown to the side. And he walks to the poorest neighborhood in London and serves. That's what Jesus did. Not only did Jesus come to earth, but he was born into an impoverished family. He grew up in a podunk town that people made fun of, Nazareth. So he exists in the quality of God. He didn't consider something to be grasped. He made himself nothing. He actually became a man. Jesus came to this earth. He wasn't in some bubble. He wasn't protected from the problems of earth, because he, he's experienced rejection, he's experienced acceptance, he's experienced hatred, he's experienced love, he's experienced loneliness, he, he's experienced what it's like to be all alone. I mean, Jesus experiences joy, he experiences sadness, he, he experiences the whole gambit of human emotion. He becomes a man, but not just a man, he takes upon himself the very nature of a servant. Isn't that crazy? God's a servant. That's why we all say blown away by John 13. When God gets on his knees and washes the dirty feet of his disciples. God, there's something wrong with that picture. That's not the way God's supposed to act. But that's not the God that we serve. And so not only was he a servant, but he was obedient to death. I mean, the the question you might want to ask as we go down this ladder is how low will he go? He'll go all the way to death. And then there's one more thing added. Even death on a cross. Not just death, but the most embarrassing, cruelest form of death. Romans would not crucify their own citizens. They might crucify a slave. Jewish people considered anyone who died on a cross to be cursed. And yet Jesus is willing to descend all the way to death. And I love the way the hymn puts it. Even, even death on a cross. What an incredible, incredible picture of Jesus. And right now, we're going to stop and we're going to remember that death. And I've asked a, a brother of ours, Steve Bragg, one of our newer members, if Steve would read something that many of us grew up reading years, decades ago called The Medical Report of the Crucifixion. You see, we have a little problem with this because when you read the Gospels, it simply says they crucified him. And if you're living in the first century, that makes sense. You've seen crucifixions all around. But for us, we've never seen a crucifixion. And so we've never quite get why the hymn says even death on a cross. And so this is an incredible reading. Steve, if you'd come on up, Steve's going to read this. And then he is going to lead us in a prayer. And after that prayer, hopefully you have communion. We're going to spend a moment in silence. And and today, I want us to reflect, not just on the cruelty of his death. That's going to be obvious. But go beyond that, on the depth of his love. Steve, if you'd come read. Good morning, church. After the arrest in the middle of the night, Jesus was brought before the Sanhedrin and Caiaphas, the high priest. 
It is here that the first physical trauma was inflicted. A soldier struck Jesus across the face for remaining silent when being questioned. The palace guards then blindfolded him and mockingly taunted him and struck him in the face. In the early morning, Jesus, battered, bruised, dehydrated, and exhausted from a sleepless night, is taken across Jerusalem to the praetorium of the Fortress Antonia, seat of government. Jesus apparently suffered no physical mistreatment at the hands of Herod and was returned to Pilate. It was then that Pilate ordered Barabbas released and condemned Jesus to scourging and crucifixion. The prisoner was stripped of his clothing and his hands tied to a post above his head. The Roman legionnaire steps forward with the flagrum in his hand. This is a short whip consisting of several heavy leather thongs with two small balls of lead attached at the end of each. The heavy whip is brought down with full force again and again across Jesus' shoulders, back, and legs. At first, the heavy thongs cut through the skin only, but as the blows continue, they cut deeper into the subcutaneous tissues, producing first an oozing of blood from the capillaries and veins of the skin, and finally, spurting arterial bleeding from the vessels in the underlying muscles. Finally, the skin is hanging in long ribbons. When it is determined by the centurion in charge that the prisoner is near death, the beating is finally stopped. The half-fainting Jesus is then untied and allowed to slump down to the stone pavement, wet with his own blood. The Roman soldiers see a great joke in this provincial Jew claiming to be a king. They throw a robe across his shoulders and place a stick in his hand for a scepter. They still need a crown to make the travesty complete. A small bundle of flexible branches covered with long thorns are pressed into his scalp. Again, there is copious bleeding, the scalp being one of the most vascular areas of the body. After mocking him and striking him across the face, the soldiers take the stick from his hand and strike him across the head, driving the thorns deeper into his scalp. Finally, they tire of their sadistic sport and the robe is torn from his back. This had already become adherent to the clots of blood and serum in the wounds and its removal, just as in the careless removal of a surgical bandage, causes excruciating pain and the wounds begin again to bleed. In deference to Jewish custom, the Romans return his garments. The heavy patibulum of the cross is tied across his shoulders and the progression, procession of the condemned Christ, two thieves, and the execution detail of Roman soldiers begins its slow journey along the Via Della Rosa. In spite of his efforts to walk erect, the weight of the heavy beam, together with the shock produced by the copious blood loss, is too much. He stumbles and falls. He tries to rise, but human muscles have been pushed beyond their endurance. The centurion, anxious to get on with it, selects a stalwart North African onlooker, Simon of Cyrene, to carry the cross. Jesus follows, still bleeding and sweating the cold, clammy sweat of shock. The 650-yard journey to Golgotha is finally completed. The prisoner is again stripped of his clothes except a loincloth allowed to the Jews. The crucifixion begins. 
Jesus is offered wine mixed with myrrh, a mild analgesic mixture. He refuses to drink. Simon is ordered to place the patibulum on the ground, and Jesus is thrown quickly backward with his shoulders against the wood. The legionnaire feels for the depression at the front of the wrist. He drives a heavy square wrought iron nail through the wrist and deep into the wood. Quickly he moves to the other side and repeats the action, being careful not to pull the arms too tightly, but to allow some flexion and movement. The patibulum is then lifted in place on top of the stipes, and the sign reading Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jew, is nailed into place. The left foot is pressed backwards against the right foot, and with both feet extended, toes down, a nail is driven through the arch of each, leaving the knees moderately flexed. The victim is now crucified. As he slowly sags down with more weight on the nails of his wrist, excruciating fiery pain shoots through his fingers and up the arms. The nails in the wrists are putting pressure on the median nerves. As he pushes himself upward to avoid this stretching torment, his, he places his full weight on the nail through his feet. Again, there is the searing agony of the nail tearing through the nerves between the metatarsal bones of the feet. At this point, another phenomenon occurs. As the arms fatigue, great waves of cramps sweep over the muscles. With these cramps come the inability to push himself upward. Hanging by his arms, air can be drawn into the lungs, but it cannot be exhaled. Jesus fights to raise himself in order to get even one short breath. Finally, carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs and in the bloodstream, and the cramps partially subside. Spasmodically, he is able to push himself upward to exhale and bring in the life-giving oxygen. It was undoubtedly during these periods that he uttered the seven short sentences that are recorded. The first, looking down at the Roman soldiers throwing dice for his garments, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The second, to the penitent thief, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. The third, looking down at the terrified, grief-stricken John, the beloved apostle, he said, Behold thy mother. And looking at Mary, his mother, Woman, behold thy son. The fourth cry is from the beginning of the 22nd Psalm. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Hours of this limitless pain, cycles of joint-rending cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, searing pain as tissue is torn from his lacerated back as he moves up and down against the rough timber. Then another agony begins. A crushing pain deep in his chest as the pericardium slowly fills with serum and begins to compress the heart. Let us remember again this 22nd Psalm, 14th verse. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. It is now almost over. The loss of tissue fluids has reached a critical level. Jesus gasps. His fifth cry, I thirst. Let us remember another verse from the prophetic 22nd Psalm. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws, and thou hast brought me into the dust of death. 
a sponge soaked in polka, the cheap sour wine, which is a staple drink of the Roman legionnaires, is lifted to his lips. The body of Jesus is now an extremis, and he can feel the chill of death creeping through his tissues. This realization brings out his sixth words, it is finished. His mission of atonement has been completed. Finally, he can allow his body to die. With one last surge of breath, he once again presses his torn feet against the nail, straightens his legs, takes a deeper breath, and utters his seventh and last cry. Father, into my ha thy hands I commit my spirit. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you for the sacrifice of our Lord so that we may obtain forgiveness of sins. Thank you for these elements, the bread which represents his body and the wine which represents his blood so that we may remember the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. In his name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. I'm glad we didn't end with Jesus on the cross, but with the resurrected King. But before we leave this incredible passage, I just want to make two points that I think are really important to our response to God. First of all, the picture of God that we see in this beautiful song is not a contradiction, but an expression of who God is. See, at times I'm tempted to see this story and think, you know, there's just this one little weird part of Jesus' life where he, he dies on the cross, where there's this odd stories about him washing feet and, and serving, but that was just for 33 years. That's not who he is. Because what the scripture says there is that Jesus was an expression of who God is. There are two different sentences here that are really important. One says, he is by very nature God. He is God. He's completely God. He doesn't give up being God when he comes to earth. And the word there for very nature means that's the essence of who he is. And then later it says, by very nature he was a servant. That's not an exception. That's an expression. His very essence was a servant. Guys, here is the crazy good news of today. God is a servant. That's his essence. That's who he is. God has a self-giving love. That's why we see that crazy story in John 13 when Jesus is washing feet. Before he ever gets there, Scripture makes it plain. He knows where he's come from. He knows where he's going. Jesus knows who he is. He's God. Therefore, he washes feet. My friends, this is the God that calls you to follow him. And then one more point. This picture of God is a representation of who we are to be. Not only is it a picture of who God is, but as image bearers of God, we are created to be servants, to give love. Two key words here. It, it says in verse 6 that, that when Jesus thought about coming to this earth, he considered it. He reasoned about it. Jesus is thinking through, what does it mean to be God? It means to be a servant. 
And in some of the older versions, if you go back to verse 3, where he's challenging us, it says, we should consider ourselves. So did, did you see not only did Jesus climb down the ladder, but the challenge here is for us to climb down the ladder. I mean, just think about what the Apostle Paul said that we are to do. We are to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others as better than ourselves. That's pretty radical, isn't it? Look not only for your own interest, but look after the interest of others because you are to have the attitude of Christ. So the two takeaways today is, my friends, this is who God is, and this is who we are supposed to be. And here's the point, guys. Here's the point that blows our culture away, blows the natural man away, the way up is down. See, we think the way up is up. Jesus says the way up is down. And then you see that in the last part of the song. For God highly exalted him. Paul makes up a word in that sentence. Never been used before. It really means he hyper exalted him to the place above every place and gave him the name above every name that the knee that every knee shall fall before him and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God you see guys the way up is down and God exalted Jesus to that highest place. And my challenge for us today is that for us to come to God, we've got to see this. If you understand the God that we're talking about today, if this is the picture of God and Jesus is the complete, perfect revelation of God, I'm telling you, that's, that's not most people's picture of God. We think, oh, maybe for 33 years he did this. No, no, no. It's the essence of who he is. And when we call you to come to Jesus, that's who we're calling you to. And here's my question for you and for me. How can you turn that down? I mean, if that's the picture of God, how do you not serve that God? Who gave everything, descended even to death on a cross. And also, how can we not seek to emulate him and lead that kind of life? That's our challenge. So I want to ask you this morning, are you wholeheartedly following Jesus? I'm not asking you if you're perfect. I'm asking if you got it all together. I'm just saying, have you met the Jesus that we watched descend this ladder today? And have you come to a decision? See, guys, at the beginning of this, it says Jesus considered this. He thought about it. And the whole history of mankind turned on his decision to voluntarily give himself up. 
And your whole life turns on whether you will make the decision to follow him to your own death and own resurrection. Understand this, my friend. Success is not climbing the ladder. It's going down the ladder. Because it's down that ladder where you meet Jesus. It's down that ladder when you're fulfilled. You know, the world tells us it's being on top of the ladder. It's having status and power and all these things. But my friends, in the long run, those are dead-end streets. It might feel fun when you finally get to the top. But then if that's what your life is about, you'll find out your life is rather meaningless. But when you descend back down that ladder and you decide that life is not about me, that's most of our problem. It's not about me. It's about him. It's about others. And Jesus said over and over, if you'll lose your life, you'll find it. There's one man in Scripture who absolutely got it, and it's sort of shocking he got it. But you remember at the cross, at the end of the cross, there was a Roman centurion who exclaimed, truly, this was the Son of God. More than likely, all he saw was a God on a cross who instead of cursing back, blessed. Instead of seeking revenge for his people, he sought forgiveness. That's all he needed to see. And he knew this man is extraordinary. He's not just a man. He's God. And this morning, if you can come to that conclusion that you want to confess that he is the Son of God and want to begin your life all over again, I invite you to come. We're going to sing in just a moment. Just come. But here's what I want to remind you of from our story today. Not trying to be blunt here, but no more blunt than the Scripture. Either you will confess him now as Lord That was radical. Lord, that was a word only used for Roman emperors. And and God gave him the name above every name, Lord. And, And what our passage says is, either you will confess him now or you will later. You are not going to avoid confessing him as Lord. And I say to you, in light of what he has done for you, how in the world could you say no to this man? Here's the truth. We used to sing it. He came down to our level because we couldn't get up to his. If you want to follow that Jesus, or if you need to rededicate your life to that Jesus, come do it right now as we stand and sing.